the the thing that analysts want to know and the media generally is not capable of, of parsing uh, is is when a company it could be cruise could be Waymo, could be mobile announces a city that they're expanding it's meaningless it could be one car mapping it could be a hundred cars carrying passengers it has announcing a city has no value and uh, to compliment my old friend brian seleski founder and ceo of argo ai um he refused to announce a city unless there was a meaningful footprint Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association and uh, the world's greatest um, strategic management consultant advisor in robotics. A lot of words. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. Um, now, as a as a as an Arizona resident uh, coming from Miami, I thought I was ready for everything. I was not. It is 115 degrees plus in Scottsdale, and I I, I come out of my apartment, um, which is well shaded. I'm lucky that I've got trees around it, and I from my front door to my carport, which is like 75 percent shaded, is probably 50 feet. And I need a different outfit, literally a different outfit. Kirsten, you've lived in Tucson how many years? I mean, I'm from Tucson, so. Yes. Okay, so. What are your questions? Standard, like the this like two seasons in like ten minutes, like air conditioning, st- not even stifling heat. I mean, it's like living in like American Arrakis. It is, <laughs> it is hot. For the for the record, I just want for context for this. <laughs> Conversation. I wanted to be clear. It is 66 degrees here in Portland, Oregon, right now, and overcast. Anyway, you two Arizona dwellers, please continue. I, I feel like I need a still suit. I need. I need like a worm. Like it. Has it always been like this? Has it always been this hot every summer? Well, Phoenix is hotter than Tucson, and you, because you're you're in a city that has decided to cover itself in concrete, it traps that heat. So that's why you're extra hot. Um, so, so it's a dry heat though. So you should be fine. <laughs> yeah. Every, that's, that's cute. <laughs> so let me ask, here's another question for you since you're looking down on me as usual. Uh, I'm lucky enough to drive the world's greatest car that Edward hates. I have a Tesla and I have in, I can use the app to turn on the air conditioning and cool it down before I walk out to it. What do people do? who don't have remote AC start because a cars must or must be literally undrivable if they are sitting in the sun for more than a few minutes. Uh, is that just- I mean, I don't have, I, I, I'm right now, my daily driver right now is a 39 year old sports car. So a Porsche 928. <laughs> yes. And with working air conditioning though, it's, it's air conditioning is top notch. It's very good. But is it possible to, you know, I mean, growing up, you always knew to throw like a towel on your front seat because you might like burn your legs if you're wearing shorts. Um, That's why people use sunshades. And sure, yeah, if you have a remote start vehicle, you 100% have that air conditioning set. It's a nice feature for people who own Teslas and any other vehicle that you can remote start. I'm actually, let let me uh, criticize Tesla Model 3. Uh, interior design for here. Ed, I, Ed is smiling with anticipation at this nugget he can use. Um, the uh, If your sunshade, I have one, is 
not really well installed, like flush with the in, inside of the windshield, and it folds or sags, then your in, then your remote air conditioning is useless because of the uh, design of the interior vent system. Uh, the sunshade sagging uh, then blocks the vents from actually cooling the vehicle using the remote. So you have to pick remote AC start or sunshade. You you really can't have both. Hmm, so, I mean, Phoenix is, is fascinating. I mean, it's one of the most popular cities in the country. It's growing as fast as basically almost anywhere in the country. It is also a place that literally was uninhabitable until air conditioning existed at all. And is right. also a place where – and I find your question fascinating because, you know, you ask how do people live without – you know, this remote start air conditioning in, in their car. What goes was sort of implicit in that is you could not survive in Phoenix without a car. Oh, no. Well, well you could, unless you live in cul-de-sac. You could in cul-de-sac. And have you, have you seen in the recent, for those who don't know cul-de-sac, it's a no car um, walkable community run, uh, started by a guy named Ryan Johnson. It's in Tempe, pretty close to ASU. And they've got a restaurant and a supermarket and there's a, there's a light rail train. It's also um, close to, yeah, it's built purposely right next yeah, to the light yeah. rail rail. Yeah. The best thing about it, I'm going to say something. I think Ryan will like this, but I'm not, if you show sure he'll, he'll like all of it. It is brilliant. And my visit, it's beautiful. It is the kind of loft style housing, but packaged inside like a Greek village style. It is beautiful. And, you know, the buildings are all a few uh, degrees off axis from each other. So it creates natural shade at most hours of the day. And it, it's stunning and it's brilliant. It's so well executed. Um, and as I, as I walk through it, I, all I want, I'm like, I want this but with the parking garage. <laughs> but I would live there in a heartbeat, except that point. I need a, I need a car um, because I take my daughter to school and do other stuff. Um, but um, it is, yeah, cul-de-sac is, it's a jewel. And I hope that that propagates. It's really, it's amazing. It's amazing. But to answer your question, no, you can't. It's very difficult. Um, you really have to be committed to live in Phoenix or Tucson, and not have a car. Um, I definitely know people in Tucson who don't, and it's like a committed lifestyle, but they live in their bubble, right? right? Or if they do have a car, it's just for like road trips or they'll rent a car for that. But they live in their little world, which is um, luckily we have a ton of bike paths. We have one, the loop that goes around the entire city. Um, and, but it's very, you know, spread out, not as spread out as Phoenix, but it's still spread out. And we see this in Western cities. It's um, a real problem where just uncurbed growth, spreading out growth because of the land and not having the water really to support that. Um, residential housing takes a lot of water, but also in this is kind of getting off topic, but in, in Southern Arizona, there's also massive, huge agricultural operations um, that are not even necessarily owned by, um, you know, U.S. companies that have the water rights and are just basically sucking these ancient aquifers dry to grow things like hay and ship it to Saudi Arabia. One of the largest farms in the state of Arizona is a Saudi-owned um, farm. So you have that coupled with all this uncurbed growth, and it's like, yeah, you have a problem. We probably shouldn't be living here. This is why here in here in Portland, instead of talking about the weather, we always just talk about like the the coming like flood of of, of climate refugees. Yeah, climate refugees. You'll have forest fires uh, or smoke, you know, issues probably. Right. By so. the time everyone moves here, we'll we'll have made it a desert. So you know. For sure. there's no is, escape. 
so many people I've met uh, here who are car dependent in the summer, when it cools down into the 80s, uh, then just ride bikes for like for a season. Uh, if they if you know, except maybe to drive to work, the rest of the time they're on bikes or walking. I, I'm lucky enough. Well, I so live- we we did this. We did that. You know, when we decided to move back here, we purposely bought our house next to the loop, which is a uh, again goes around the city, and there's no cars allowed on it. And we committed to having just one car. And um, my husband rode his bike to work every day. I work from home or travel, and so we rarely, rarely drove. Um, we bike to the grocery store, we bike to, you know, basically everywhere. And then when we were going to go out to dinner, um, if it wasn't walking distance, we would take an Uber anyway. So, um, it's totally possible like eight months out of the year, but four months out of the year, it's, it's tough. And people have kids who take their kids to, you know, school across town or whatever. That's obviously a problem too. Have you been following in the last few days uh, on on the platform formerly known as Twitter <laughs> uh, the like increasing fights between um, urbanists and like our friend Mike Levine from Product Communications for Trucks at Ford and um, critical urbanists? Have you been following this at all? So I mean, I've seen you know, a few things popping up here and there, but but what what specific offending tweet are you talking about? Well. So, um, you know, you have all the way on, on one wing. I, I don't, I don't know if I would call it the leftist wing, but the urbanist wing. You have like a continuum um, of people who are like, oh, you know, bikes are good, cars bad, and then at the far end, it's like banned cars. And on the other end, you have the the communists, which it's like cars are, the, are good, everything else bad. That cars built America, and then you have people who kind of slot in who are reasonable and have reasonable debates. And one of the things that happened was um, David, our, our friend David Zipper posted a, uh, posted on the platform formerly known as Twitter a picture of a brand new like F-150 and like an old truck of some kind. And, you know, the old one was much smaller. And he's like, we have we have truck bloat. We have vehicle bloat. And, I did um, see this. Mike Le- it's funny. Yeah, Mike Levine came in and um, we like Mike and he's a reasonable man. And he came in and he's, and he's like, you know, I'm driving my $23,000 Ford Maverick to go get some coffee. And uh, it gets better gas mileage than like an old Honda Civic. <laughs> and I think he also getting- noted that I think he also noted that a new Honda Civic is still heavier than an old one too. So yeah. like even the small cars are bigger. Yeah. So then he's getting assaulted by a bunch of like super super bike folks, and like we well, don't need a truck at all. You're just gonna have a cup of coffee. And he's like, well, what if I want to go like off roading? And then somebody shows up with like a mountain bike. Well, I go off roading, and th- so there's this very un. Mike Mike's tweet was in good faith, and he has a sense of humor, and he, and you know he uses his truck, and so do many of his customers. But there, it, it's very clear that people on the extreme wings of communism and urbanism are now like, engaging in bad faith with people with whom they should be uh, allying, because the problem are people who believe that only one mode should exist, and that's the only one lifestyle is makes sense. And like battering the other side. Yeah. I, so I do want to get to the news, but I will say this. Um, at least we're having the debate because when I – like in the 70s, was that even a debate that was happening? No, every car built in the 70s was cool and no one should ride bikes in the 70s. And, and, also, and they should have banned bikes in the 70s. Cars <laughs> were sort of at their lowest point in technology and, and quality. Wrong. It's American cars in, in the 70s. Okay, yes, yes. Uh, there's a reason they call it the Malays era. Um 
yeah. So I don't know. This is, that is a big uh, as a big can of worms. I I think the, to me, what's frustrating about these debates. You're right, Kirsten. I mean, there is sort of more discourse about it now, and we have the internet, so it's easier for people who live totally different right. lifestyles to kind of debate about this sort of stuff. But I think the thing that frustrates me is that it's sort of uh, it reminds me of like I like this movie, well, I like that movie, and like I know the stakes are right. much higher than that. There's more going on about that than, than that, but like it feels very much like a, a personal taste and aesthetic debate, which is not one mm-hmm. in which there's really much ground to find a like compromise or something when in fact this is a policy issue and a a sort of economic cultural issue that that we do need to find some solid ground on what frustrates me is is why yes cars are getting bigger yes more people are buying crossovers instead of station wagons yes there's all this bloat and stuff that's going on and i think to me whether you're critical of it or you support it or whatever the thing that that no one seems to be trying to do is ask why why are things trending in that direction? Like there are mm-hmm. different theories. It's it's the manufacturers manipulated. It's oh, this is what people actually want. I think there's some really interesting things going on in that conversation, and 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 that's the part that I don't see, and 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 I would like to see more of those conversations. Well, actually, let's let's build a bridge to the news because our first topic, or at least I think our first topic, is the California Public Utilities Commission and Cruz and Waymo duking it out with the city of San Francisco. Is that the first topic? Yeah. Sure. So here's the well, here's build, the bridge. Build that bridge. Yeah. Here's the me. bridge. Okay. So two weeks ago when we recorded, uh, you know, we were talking about the ad that Cruz ran in the New York Times: "Humans are bad drivers," and that you know, which I won't speak for you, but I, my position was that was extremely tone deaf and unproductive, uh, in addition to the discourse. I, I think there's a general tone deafness um, on the extreme wings of the mobility debate, and. Uh, we can't. I mean, you can't tell people what to think. But companies that have enormous budgets for marketing and communications and policy need to take the temperature of the target markets and the people who live there and understand them better before they make sweeping declarations of what the product is, how they're going to deploy it, and battering the locals over the head with you, you just suck. You're just bad drivers. Therefore, we're here. Like these are just not productive. Tem- taking the temperature should have been done much sooner before rollout. Yeah. So I think I think it's the the, the debate over AVs in San Francisco. And we, and we should say, you know, the CPUC is going to rule probably right around the time that this episode comes out. So we will be discussing this in a lot more detail. But yeah, when yeah, we we'll, talked we'll about this- We'll do a full autopsy. We'll do a full, yeah. full autopsy. But, but when we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago about the, about the cruise ad, I think, Alex, it's a, it's a great example of kind of what, what I'm- what we're talking about with the this sort of urbanist debate too, which is that like extreme positions tend to fuel extreme positions on the other right, and 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 I think for, from the AV sector, this like core bedrock position that they always fall back on, which is that this is safer, this is safer. Anybody who who argues against anything that we do hates safety is one of those positions that like I get why they fall back on it. It's a it's a a, a, a rhetorical fortress, right? But it's not one that allows constructive engagement. And I think that one of the things that needs to happen, and and so I so I agree. A lot of the criticisms of AVs, and, and we've talked about this. I wrote a bit this, about this on my blog a few weeks back. A lot of the criticisms that you see in San Francisco around AVs are not that reasonable. A lot of them are very much about tech lash and this sort of culture war around the tech sector. And so they're so the criticisms are not like I think like 
like very clean identifications of what are really the problems and they lose sight of kind of the big picture. But again, if the AV business keeps saying, you know, oh, well, none of that matters because you just hate safety. Like you never, each side just sort of fuels each other into worse and worse positions. Yeah. You never get, you never actually get anywhere. And, um, you know, Alex, Ed, you kind of referred this too, but Alex, you said, you know, it's, they should have been taking a temperature check early on. And I would add to that and say, and frequently and often, throughout the existence of the business because um, tech clash is a real thing. We, we did see, there will always be people who just simply are scared and do not like something because it's new. That doesn't mean that they don't have legitimate concerns, but they might be, you know, taking in a more extreme position to, to then um, use what Ed was saying, like what cruises use and said, well, you know, you must not, want to save lives is essentially the same argument that Tesla used. Um, if you write about um, autopilot and criticize it, then you're murdering people. And yeah. it's like, well, um, let's let's dial that back a little bit. So yeah, you should take a temperature check early on, but then you better be on it frequently and often engaging the community because, and I know there have been efforts, by the way, by Waymo and Cruz, but maybe to not the same level because you will be surprised when those issues aren't resolved. People don't want, for instance, vehicles um, going constantly down their road and doing, you know, a 10 point turn at the end of it. And they're, they're not, no one is going to want that. So you better be engaging those neighborhoods and be ready for some blowback and then adjust as warranted. So I think it's an early and often thing as much as, you know, before launching. Did you, either of you uh, have an opinion on um, Cruz's outreach? Uh, They're putting Cruz patches on with the the football team jerseys. No, not football, baseball. Come on, get your sports right, man. I don't follow, I don't follow unwield sports. (laughs) And uh, what about, uh, and and former mayor Willie Brown becoming like an advisor, advisor in the company? I mean, I I think this all points to obviously a huge effort to become as visible as possible. Um, The badges, by the way, on the San Francisco Giants, which is a baseball team, by the way, um, is um, massive. Like, have you seen the size of this badge? But, um, Ed, I know you're about to jump in, but it's like, to me, it just seems like they're looking at every way to do a marketing effort, which is one way of gauge engaging the public, but maybe not the only way to be doing that. That's a very one, one way type of uh, communication, not two way. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think, uh, you know, there's there. Yeah, no. And, and just to finish, I know there are multiple people. I've, like I remember having lots of conversations with some very smart plugged in people who were at the time working in the AV sector about how to have better, more constructive conversations rather than sort of, you know, kind of this, this sort of, seeing everything as a, as a, as a battle, a PR battle, essentially with, with your enemies, you know, how to have something more constructive. And I think there really is like, there are opportunities to do that. And, and the industry really had chose not to, like, I don't think that people aren't aware of how to have a more constructive conversation on this stuff. And so, and so, and so what you have instead is, is yeah, like now it's like, there's, there really isn't an effort to have a, a conversation so much. It's really a matter of sort of throwing resources at PR and hoping to sort of overwhelm the opposition to me. It strikes me a little bit, and I know this is another topic we want to discuss today, which is, you know, sort of the scaling out and the building out of some of these businesses. And Alex, I know you have some experience that really will help cast some light on that. But to me, it's it's there's a similar thing happening there where it's like the the goal for these AV companies is to show that they're scaling. 
And, and it's very clearly very important for them to show we are scaling, we can scale. And the thing that I always come back to, and again, I know we've just discussed this before, but like, what are you scaling? Like for me, I would much rather see one operation operating profitably in one city to prove that it really <laughs> can be that. Or at least, you know, again, like, like, like it makes sense that something like this won't be fully profitable at scale, but like more insight into showing that what you're scaling is actually sustainable. Because to me right now, what it feels like is like, you know, we're, you're scaling because that's what you think you need to do to, to essentially like either raise more money or keep investment coming from GM, which to me like is not a sign that like this this service is is about to be a real thing anytime soon. Uh, you know, I need to resur- resurrect one of my columns I wrote when I worked at Argo for Argo's now defunct site, uh, likening the uh, robot taxi business to the game of Risk. Y'all, you remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who has never played Risk, you put you, you take a territory, and then at the, every turn you hold that territory, it generates more armies, and then you generate like a um, basically a critical mass of new army generation, and then at, at, once you've achieved that, you can then like basically move across the board, and though know, the if the economies of scale in hardware and software development around robot taxis resemble that. You you know, if you look at Uber's most popular uh, cities, markets, you can create a, a map kind of like a risk board game map of potential robotaxi markets. And you need to seize and hold these. And but to seize them in like the board game version of Robotaxi, you would need to win a territory across multiple dimensions. This is how the business development teams, these companies do it. Um, they have, each have a slightly different focus, but the dimensions would be um, community um, goodwill, <laughs> um, regulatory capture, uh, technological software capability, um, location of depots, uh, and then budget to operate and maintain a fleet that can actually potentially on a local level scale to become profitable. Because uh, you don't want to be running one market as a loss while it, <laughs> subsidized by other markets that are profitable. And so the the thing that analysts want to know and the media generally is not capable of, of parsing uh, is is when a company it could be cruise could be Waymo, could be mobileye announces a city that they're expanding it's meaningless it could be one car mapping it could be 100 cars carrying passengers it has announcing a city has no value and to compliment my old friend Brian Seleski founder and CEO of Argo AI um, he refused to announce a city unless there was a meaningful footprint. That footprint crosses all those dimensions. And so we do not know. And we don't know, even if a company says we're mapping, we don't know if we're mapping with one vehicle or 50. And we don't know how quickly they can learn that city. And when the word generalization of uh, autonomy is used, it is so vague. <laughs> because you know, it, one person could be pl- practicing play b- baseball alone every day, all day long for a year will not necessarily make them a great player on a team. It's just that it, and so there is, we don't have enough information to make judgments, but we can look at an interesting example of Mobileye who announced a lot of cities in recent years. And then very quietly, those city operations disappeared. Um, one of them was New York City. I mean, that would be a big, a big thing to, to be deployed in New York City. And yet there is no deployment. 
So uh, Roger Langtoe has written about um, this, about mobilized big announcements and kind of a contraction potentially to their partnership with Six Rent-A-Car, which might be a very interesting um, way of deploying would be through a rent-a-car company. So I'm just not – I'm not saying I don't buy Cruises or Waymo's announcement plans. I'm just not – I'm not – I don't have enough information to say that's impressive, but it's but it's no surprise they're going to the same cities because if you look across the regulatory environment and the weather, which are big hurdles to cross, there's an archipelago of states that and cities that make sense: Miami, Nashville, Austin. All these cities they make total sense. We don't know who's going to do well, but I'll, I'm going to admit a mistake and I'm going to stop talking. When I was at Argo, I quietly. Uh, snickered, and I, I said behind the scenes, I'm like, what, what, why hasn't Waymo expanded faster? Like, why haven't they scaled faster? They clearly have a, a multi-year lead in technological development. Where's the rest of the business? Now that I live in Phoenix and use Waymo's almost every day, um, I actually understand. Uh, and I, I, I think it may, it, in the absence of any other competitors for many years that would compete with them, I compliment Waymo for the deployment here because it works really well. It's just not yet clear how that, how transportable that is. Um, so why why do you understand now that you're there because of the how spread out the city is and well, how you would need to have like a very large concentration of vehicles to be able to handle that? Or well, is when there I some say other well, well, here's why: if you at the, for many years, you know. Argo was testing in Miami primarily and, um, to, you know, did some deployment in Miami. And Cruise was ultra-focused in SF. So Waymo had, could do whatever they wanted. Um, and they picked a domain that was, that was really optimal for AV. And they got it to work really well in an optimized environment, to their credit. Uh, Cruise hasn't achieved that level of optimization in their first and core city. And that is reflected in the complaints the city is bringing against them. Waymo, uh, relatively speaking, has done better in San Francisco. Like the, the number of complaints, like relative to the miles, appears to be lower. Um, San Francisco is a hard city. And now I actually think Waymo probably made the right choice to starting in an optimal environment and trying to cause, come as close to perfection as they could before scaling. Now, whether or not they should have picked San Francisco as, an, as a second one is a different conversation. And it's clearly a big cactus to swallow, and you can't pull the cactus out of your throat once you decide to eat it. And both Cruz and Waymo are learning that the hard way. So I, I, I want to tease something out here, Alex, because I'm, I'm kind of – I want to understand why this why this matters. Is it is it a question of for investors – because again, I think like with AVs, it's, it's really investors who, who seem to be sort of – you know, playing the music that everyone's dancing to, is this this need to to scale to to put down as you say, sort of like establish yourself in different cities, like a like a risk game, and build up your your position there? How much of that is like scale matters because it signals that the technology is maturing and more generalizable, right? How much of it is scale as a proxy for for technological maturity versus how much of it is scaling, like investors understand that scaling is important because you have to get pieces on the board and you have to build up operations early because there may only be, you know, the the opportunity for one or two or whatever to build up the kind of footprint that they need. Again, in terms of just the right real estate for a depot, uh, the right, you know, political relationships, that kind of thing. Like how how much of it is 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 each of those two? Is it a bit of both? Is it one or is it more the other? 
What's your sense? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, at you know, at Argo, they you know, I I, I would want to speak for Brian, but for sure, we bought from a technical from, from a technological development standpoint. Argo was firm, totally committed to the idea that you need to test in multiple cities so that eventually, when you choose to scale, you've already done the hard work. Because you need to raise more money to to you know build the vehicles, buy them, deploy them. But right. so you just you want to you try to take off the technical development off the board first in many different complex domains. Uh, so there's a great argument that that's a lot of sense. To that so that you're basically putting scale you're scaling later by testing a lot of domains first, which is very different from the Cruise Waymo approaches. The Waymo approaches test in a less complex domain, deploy in it while doing some testing in some other places, and. Um, a, you know, a slow and you know, I don't want to say a slow approach, a a pragmatic approach, and then the cruise thesis is let's start at the hardest place first because if we can solve that, then we can throw money behind scaling afterwards. Now, uh, we're seeing right now that each of these have their pros and cons. Um, in Argo's case, because Argo's public narrative didn't show didn't show scale deployment local or national, that narrative probably wasn't quite as sexy. You know, and so Argo. Well, it certainly made it harder to, let's say, convince the companies that were backing them to continue to support them, and and that's a tricky one that every autonomous vehicle startup has had to deal with, which is how much to promote what they're doing. I firmly, I totally bought into into the Argo thesis, which is you tell the truth, and a lot of people wanted to hear hype, and. I'll leave, well, I'll leave that on the by table. By the way, hype can also be the truth. Like a company can go and announce to go into a city, look at the city, test and map in the city, and uh, either continue to scale or pull back. That that isn't th- th- just to be clear. Like there is there is lying or trying to you know make spurious claims, and then there is um, taking advantage of. And I'm not endorsing this approach. I'm just saying that there's. Um, there's absolutely a um, uh, some evidence that I saw a few years ago of companies completely lying, and then companies just no getting way. caught up in the hype and saying and saying, "Hey, we're going to go into this city," and then realizing once they got there that oh, like New York City is a great example. Oh, <laughs> the regulatory environment is 100% not ever going to work here. Um, you know, maybe we shouldn't have announced that and then quietly, you know, going back. And so, you know, you, you see all kinds. Um, so think of I, it like this. Uh, when you, um, I don't know how many people in, in the audience play like war games or military simulations, but in a, uh, I'll use the, um, the analogy of combined arms in, uh, in strategy war games. You can't, if you want to take a, an objective, you can have a lot of infantry, you get a lot of tanks, you, have, you can have aircraft. But if you only bring a lot of one thing, you're going to have a very hard time taking that objective. Combined arms is the balance of assets um, to seize and hold an objective. And so the balance of in, in making a – in deploying a viable – a minimum viable – a viable and potentially profitable robotaxi service requires that the vehicles – aren't just safe, but they're also comfortable. So people want to ride in them. So if you have a very safe vehicle, it's uncomfortable, nobody's riding it. If you have a comfortable vehicle that has crashes, no one's going to ride in that either. And then you need to have goodwill. You need to have um, 
a, a, a critical mass of vehicles available on the network, you have to balance a lot of things. No one company has successfully demonstrated a mastery of all the dimensions of launching a viable robotaxi service anywhere except Waymo and Phoenix. Well, and, and, there, and there, the last frontier is the economics. And, and I get why, you know, look, like, like right, it, it may well be one of these things like, say you want to compete with the Toyota Camry. Well, I guess, God, I'm so old. It's not the Toyota Camry. It's the Toyota RAV4, like a big best-selling mass market car, right? Uh, you know, you can't just be like, we'll build one factory and see how it goes and then try to scale, right? Like the RAV4, like, like, like best selling vehicles are able to be what they are as a function of their scale. Like this, the scale is fundamental to, to making them work as products. And it's certainly possible that there's an element of that with, with autonomous vehicles, right? Like you need X amount of scale to, to, to even have a, a shot at profitability. And, but but like we don't we don't know like we don't know what the path to profitability looks like for these companies. We don't know if it's possible to operate one city profitably but not another. And like and like in the absence, it's 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 the vacuum, uh, you know, wherein we don't have any information about what the economics of these of these are. Even again, even on a theoretical level, no one has walked us through sort of at a theoretical level what the path to profitability really looks like. Um, and so I, I think it, you, it leaves can, us, it leaves us waiting. So it's just, but it feels like it leaves us waiting for the technological miracle, which I think is what a lot of investors have sort of wanted out of AB tech for a long time. I, you know, I think that, um, the, I mean, there's a clear use case in, it's not just confined to Phoenix for me going to the airport in a Waymo. It's reliable. It comes quickly. I love it. It's comfortable. It's par or cheaper than an Uber. It's great. But the, the, another dimension in all this is, you know, how many different form factors of vehicles do you need to get to profitability? Most of these fleets have only one, some maybe two, but if they can't do airport pickup and drop <laughs> easily, soon, then you're not going to, then that city's not going to get to profitability. It's just not. Whereas it might be possible, and I've seen models, um, not just at Argo, but at other places, it, one, to construct a business across like a, um, a, a long list of second tier cities, you know, and instead of doing all the entire city, all big cities, you there are potentially different models where you seize many territories, but you don't fight for the nasty ones out of the gate. And so these chess pieces, I mean, you, you, know, we, you know, the leadership has is taking they're betting that tens of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars. And no one's done this before. The only thing analogous potentially maybe would be like, you know, the people who bought real estate or that you put airports 100 years ago, <laughs> hoping that the planes would land, hoping that the fees were right. I mean, that took a long time to play out. Um, there, By the anyway. way, a lot of those deals, there wasn't hope. There was absolute um, politics going on to ensure that. Absolutely. You know, yeah. 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 Well, and also, and also yeah. a lot of speculative waste yeah. and all kinds of look other at, things. Look at no, Denver International Airport and wonder why what? it's, you know, 30 minutes. Just so no, nobody thinks I'm, I'm pessimistic here. I am I'm as I'm absolutely convinced, totally convinced, autonomous vehicles are inevitable. This is all inevitable. The only question is who it's going to be. And whether the mistakes, I want to say bad actions. I don't think there's any bad actors here. Whether the um, tone, whether the tone deafness of some of some people and decision makers will delay the rollout of the wiser players. That's the only debate there's that worth having. 
Alex, we have a, we have a lot of other stuff I want to discuss, but I want I have one last last thought about this. Why why I think from like a comms perspective, the economics of like why demonstrating like the path to to profitability is 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 such an important thing. What, where where you see Cruz and Waymo right now uh, in terms of their sort of winning over the public hearts and minds campaign is they're trying to get butts and seats, people in the products, and like I, for me, Tesla is the is the you know the blueprint for how you do this the right way and getting butts in seats, particularly getting celebrities and influencers and things like that. And yeah, like they like the product, right? Like it's an Uber, but you don't have to smell the driver's BO and like things like, right? Like, like people will like the product and you price it in such a way where it seems better. Okay. So they're doing a good job on like the product comms piece of it, but like that wasn't enough for Tesla to become Tesla. Everyone wants to believe that it's just their products are good and therefore everything else flows out of that. The reality is there's a second piece that made Tesla Tesla and and that nobody else has done. And that is you don't just win people over on the product, you win people over as an investment. That's where Tesla totally differentiates itself from everybody else. And what the AV companies have not done is explain to people not just that you will enjoy taking this ride, but that you want to get a piece of this business because in the future, in the long run, this is, right? And like, they've done nothing to explain that. With with Tesla, it didn't, what they showed, it didn't have to be factual. You can just create up a narrative. Like, like the narrative is just, is just that. It's a narrative. It's about the future. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. But like what, the, what Tesla had that the AV industry doesn't have is a strong narrative that resonates with the public on an investment level. And when you get the product joy and, and, and whatever, and then you get that like buying into the, the investment narrative, that's when you get a Tesla. And I think that's why the AV companies have to, at some point, start talking to the public about what their business model looks like. Yeah. I mean, look, I, Tesla's certainly, they've won the brand, the brand awareness and like butts and seats factor. Absolutely. I mean, Cruise probably wins like the aggression factor. Like, like they are pushing the boundaries of what they can do. Um, they're pushing the boundaries, you know, in a city that's a high friction city, and then Waymo is probably the closest to like a trustworthy brand. Um, like just looking back, I mean, you just don't hear like go to Phoenix, nobody complains about Waymo here. Um, I mean, I would have given that prize to you Argo. Know, I mean, and, there and was Argo, the early day. They were in the early, early days. days. They yeah. did. Yeah. It, still, like today, like no, but it, it's just they're part of the fabric of the city, you know. And I would have given that prize to Argo. Um, were Argo still around? Um, Argo was had a great relationship with Miami, and I'm still waiting for a company to walk into the fill those shoes of engaging with cities so early and so deeply that you have defenders in the city, like who live there, and that mm-hmm. uh, you know. Anyway, moving on. Speaking of Tesla, uh, oh gosh. Uh, there was a little bit of a. It's it's like the it's like the good old days, like a legit like Tesla mini scandal, scandal. <laughs> that will like you know that like got a bunch of attention and sound and fury, and then you know the stock just went up and everyone yawned and and moved on, like it always does. Just you, like it who always wants does. to explain who, who wants to explain the scandal. Well, um, Reuters had a uh, an investigation that found that for years Tesla had exaggerated its range estimates and. Um, if you read through the story closely, they're pretty careful in stating that it isn't clear if that's still happening today. So, so they took advantage of loopholes and really pushed the boundaries of what is legal. And But it created a massive problem, which is um, they advertised uh, essentially falsely, which they have had to correct and, and they have been fined in other countries, but in the United States hasn't happened yet. 
And people bought these vehicles on the promise of these overstated ranges. And then when that didn't happen, they thought something was wrong with their personal vehicle and a flood of service calls came in to an already inundated service center. Um, And so special team was put up um, basically to get these people to cancel their appointments. And because they estimated it saved Tesla $1,000 every single time you canceled one of these. So it's kind of a two-layered story. And non-surprisingly, this past week, a a lawsuit, a proposed class action lawsuit was filed So uh, from EV owners. So what I'm really interested in is software, an algorithm was used to in the dashboard to like display range as greater than it was. And then when it would hit about 50% of battery range, it would adjust to the accurate um, range so that people wouldn't get stranded. And it's sort of like, okay, sure. A couple of years ago, a company called Volkswagen also used software, was caught using software to fake their emissions. And that blew up and, you know, people have gone to jail over that. I don't expect that same thing to happen here, but it's been interesting to watch the parallel coverage and like people's rationalization around it. Like they were buying vehicles, which had overstated ranges, the end, like, and software was being used to, to augment that and to essentially lie to people and give them false confidence, even though it would be later corrected when it got to be about 50%. I, that's a problem. I think. Well, let's um, not let's not rush yet, to, <laughs> rush to judgment about this. And yet and yet the like and yet the like reaction isn't quite there, which is which is interesting to me. Let me not take the side of Tesla, but I'm going to take the side of Tesla a little you're bit. You're not going to you're not going to take the you're not going to take the side of lying to your customers and, and and Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute, okay? As someone who was, you know, cannonballing and attempting to exp- you know extract every mile of range out of these cars going back to 2015. What's not clear to me from the story is if you bought a, I'm trying to get like a, a Tesla, which stated to 300 miles of range in 2016. It's like, if you drove it at 62 miles an hour, would you get those 300 miles? Because you certainly, it's not, it's like, it's not clear to me if they were overstating the range and showing range that was in perfect conditions or not. Because I found that it was possible back then to extract numbers that were exceptionally good if you were optimizing your driving style. But now, the other going the other way, most people like in daily driving don't do that. Sure. And Tesla knowing that would have been completely dishonest in So the real question and I haven't seen an answer to this. Hold on. The real question to me is did the co- did the cars then or now have some co- have functionality which would predict range at 100% based on that person's driving style because it would yield a very different number and that i that i know some cars do i don't know if tesla does it okay okay so like any epa rating right you're going to the real world and the and the 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 test rated there's going to be some divergence and 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 some it, and and it comes down to like this is not it, it comes down to manufacturer choices like you you choose how aggressively to pursue an EPA range rating okay so you have so you have like layers to there's like three layers to the scandal one is that Tesla 
teaches to the test. They optimize for the the rain the test the EPA number, right? Whereas and and this has been been borne out in test after test after test after test. Porsche, right? The the Taycan. You could tell they went and they did the exact opposite of this. When okay. when magazine, hold on, hold on. Magazines- let me say, as someone who has attempted to cannibal in a Taycan, the prize for most honest company that understates their range definitely goes to Porsche. Right. So it, and this was a conscious marketing choice to underpromise on the EPA number and to overdeliver in the real world. And and you know I think Porsche is the most extreme case of that. But literally. Tesla is consistently, anytime they test a lot of EVs and try and do something standard, relatively standardized in the real world, Tesla almost always has the biggest gap between, right? So, so that's level one. That's, that's level one of the scandal. Level two is that they're lying in the dash, right? They're, they're putting, they're, they're having different modes of range readout, one of which is the fake one that makes you feel good. And the other one is like, okay, things are getting real now. Uh, you know, so, 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 so that's le- level two. And then level three is gaslighting your customer saying, Oh no, no, it's not a problem. It's all in your head and, 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 and standing up a whole team to do that. Okay. And so I don't know. I, it, to me, it's just, I don't understand how anybody can trust this company. Like I just don't understand how anybody wants to, you know, and a car is something that, you know, trust is actually a pretty important thing for. And-, well, and this gets to, this gets to, I think a larger, it's a Tesla problem, but it's also a larger problem around EVs and trust because one of the big issues that I wrote about is that the EPA, while they do approve and they do like audits, they allow automakers to do one of two methods when, you know, picking these figures, they can use a standard formula, which is what Porsche does, which is why it's so conservative or you can conduct additional tests to come up with your own range estimate. And if you do it very conservatively, guess what? Like you're going to get a higher range, but, and then you're falsely, essentially falsely advertising for that. So that already creates a problem. It creates this giant loophole or opportunity to overstate range, which will only hurt the industry in the long term. But the bigger issue with Tesla is that um, they were using software in the, in-car dashboard to also misstate this range. Yeah. Up this into is, 50%. So it's it a, it's like, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like, oh, driving style, you're, you know, you drive it really hard. So like, it's different. Sure. You can argue that and you can like stay within the confines of like not breaking the law. But when you start then putting software in your vehicle or kind of like fudging to fudge the system, and then all of a sudden it goes, oh, now, now it's accurate at 50%. Um, when you're at 50% range is, uh, I think, a spurious um, tactic at the least, right? And so that's where I think it's a big issue. Um, But to me, the bigger issue, it goes beyond Tesla. It's it's Should we, Kirsten, should I I join the um, class action suit against Tesla? Get get money out of them. Should I join? And then I'll buy you dinner. No, tell me. Because if you think I should join, I'll join. I mean, you probably use, you know, you, you unlike a lot of, of EV drivers, you actually use a lot of your range a lot. You drive long distances in an EV, which yeah, is but not something that I know what you're going to say. You most want me to hit, hurt Elon. Kirsten, you're the voice of reason. You can only make that choice. I'm not going to tell you to file. Year after year after year, I've said the same thing, which is that Tesla's customers and their investors are like allergic to holding the company 
accountable. And, and so then the company continues to do shitty things to them. Well, what do you expect? You're in an abusive relationship. If you don't hold this manufacturer who you've paid a lot of money to accountable for the things that they've promised to you, you, you can only expect them to treat you shittily. So like, yes, if, if you're, it's, it's not about, you know, he's a bad guy or the company is a bad company and therefore they need to be punished. It's that you as a customer, if you don't force them to hold them accountable, they will, what they've proven year after year, case after case is that they will take advantage of you in every way that they can. All and, right. And okay. the thing, so I wrote a little bit about this as well at Niedermeyer.io. Because, yeah. Because honestly, to me, the real impact of this story Honestly, I, I kind of at this point especially could give a shit about, about Tesla owners getting screwed over. If you don't know that this is an untrustworthy company and you get screwed over by them, like you're just not doing your own homework and you kind of deserve it, frankly. Um, and and so I don't think that's the real negative impact here. I really don't care about Tesla owners. What I care about is the fact that this company has convinced everyone based on these sort of li- – like like the, the, the orthodoxy that we built up around Tesla that – long range is the only way to make an EV work when they're lying about their range, right? The the fact that we just assume that that the kind of vehicle that Tesla is selling is environment is good for the environment when, you know, there's all this evidence that, you know, a lot of them don't last very long and people only have it for a couple of years and don't come close to, you know, there's Tesla is like the locus for a whole bunch of assumptions that we make about electric vehicles and and the future of mobility and a lot of them are really really bad and 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 you know my hope is is that this one exposing this massive gap between between you know the reality and 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 the fantasy what we all want to believe is that we realize that there's a lot more of those gaps and a lot more of our assumptions about EVs and 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 the future of the car market but well, I, after I all like these years I'm I, not optimistic <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to to close on this, I would like to see, and, and this I'm sure would be very unpopular to every automaker out there because they're looking for an advantage, but to just only to have to do the more conservative method, um, to mm-hmm. not have that option to do additional testing because there's too many, it's, it's basic choice of whether an automaker is going to, you know, work the system to make it look more... Um, attractive. If everyone has to use the same thing, then you're going to, first of all, you're protecting the consumer a little bit more, right? And um, things are stated as is. Instead of using this other option to show something that is rosier than than it is. And, and by the way, if you want to have massive EV adoption, like no one would ever buy a gas vehicle that is like, there you have 400 miles but oh haha jk it's actually 300 miles like people would return those cars but also doesn't matter because for for a gas car you just fill it you know what i mean like like gas cars do do that but if well what vehicle states it as you know there's always like maybe a little extra in the like reserve tank but like sure there's the ease of finding a gas station right so the stakes aren't as high but I think that's my, my point is is that Tesla the whole the whole lie underlying Tesla is that is that it's just a scalable one to one drop in solution to gas cars and and what what we're learning you know slowly but surely is that it's not true they're they're just not they're different right and the fact that you say like in a gas car it wouldn't matter if 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 
well, so it would matter, right? If a Volkswagen were doing this, that when Volkswagen did this, the impact was polluted pollution, right? That's right. why people were mad about it. They weren't mad about yeah. it because they weren't getting the range or whatever. Because again, in a gas car, range doesn't really matter. No one talks about range anxiety in a gas car, right? Uh, and it's because the technology is fundamentally different. And and Tesla's entire empire is built on the lie that they're not fundamentally different. And and our whole government policy reinforces is built on that lie as well and reinforces it. And so until we get to a place where we can acknowledge that these are in fact two different technologies and we should embrace that and embrace that the future is going to look different, that electric is not just a drop-in thing where we keep car culture rolling along like it's always been until we embrace that. Um, We're going to be in some weird like kind of shadow world. We're coming up in a long episode and it's been amazing, but I I would like to ask you one more thing. Uh, Ed, was it you? Did you suggest we discuss uh, the, what's the story you posted? That uh, ChargePoint is going to begin tracking their e- their charger uptime because something you just said just reminded me of something that my friend Matt, our friend Matt Ferris said. He said people with EVs don't have range anxiety; they have infrastructure anxiety because a car yeah, with shorter range that. is fine if the chargers work. And then the other day, I was reading an article about. Um, uh, in the Atlantic about Texas and saying that all Texans, regardless of met mode of transportation or where you live, have grid anxiety. And so then I was thinking, there's actually multiple levels of anxiety around just power, just power. That was a good article. That was the Patrick George article, correct? Yes, it was. And yeah. so the, in Maslow's pyramid of, of power actualization, you have different levels of anxiety. So Ed or Kirsten, will one of you explain to me, because I don't understand it, how it's possible that a company whose sole job it is is to deliver energy was not tracking the uptime of their units um, on the ground locally for many years after their installation? Um, well, I'd love to have someone on here who can really provide inside view on like the business model. But from what I my understanding, and Ed, tell me if I'm wrong here, my understanding is that really a lot of these companies – like are in the zero fucks category, which is they, <laughs> they, love you. the business model is built around like people <laughs> saying we want this paying for it. And then once it's set up there, it's like, there is no, there's not like a big skin in the game moment where they have to keep it maintained and things like that. Like my understanding is that um, that's kind of why it's a problematic business model. This third party charging network. Is that your understanding, Ed? So like like all of this stuff, it's 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 about government policy, right? Everyone wants to think everything is about consumption, right? Like as consumers, we have all the power, and it's about some are better. Like no, no, it's 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 so so. And and again, like like a lot of the weird distortions that we have in the EV market, it's because of government policy interacting. It's this weird hybrid of of a of a gov- policy trying to steer things, but then consumers kind of doing their own thing. Essentially, what happened was. You know, there's been public money at the the local, state, and federal level for 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 EV charging. Actually, not so much at the federal level, but there's been a, a wide variety of government incentives for uh, EV charging for a long time. One thing changed in the last year, and that is for the very first time, the feds put a bunch more money into EV charging, and for the very first time, they required an uptime minimum. So this is part of the uh, um, uh, National EV Infrastructure Program, which I think is part of the um, Inflation Reduction Act or whatever, uh, and and basically, so so this is so so up to this point, 
like charge point and blink. So blink is a, another, I think it's a blink. There's like right around the corner from my house, the city of Portland put in incentives for small business to put in EV chargers like 10 years ago. It was like when we bought our house, which was like 10 years ago or more now. And there's someone, they, they put a blink charger at this Domino's pizza right around the corner from where I live uh, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was. I've literally, I walk past it almost every single day when I go to like get groceries and stuff. And like, it's never being used. I, I think I've seen it used once in my entire life. And it's because the government governments incentivize EVs. They're like, EVs are the future. It'll be good for business. It's all this abstract theory about what the future is going to hold. And they put it in place. And well, it's shitty and people don't use it and 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 there's no incentive to use it. And, and it's wasted. It was wasted money. And so like infrastructure to me, the lesson is infrastructure can be the best investment you ever make. And you think about like Roman roads, you know, that, that just the infrastructure outlasted, you know, centuries of, of, of this empire, right? Uh, and dams, you know, are a great example of that too. Or it could be the worst investment you ever make. And I think when it comes to high tech, new and emerging technologies, making big investments in infrastructure is really hard because guess what? The technology changes. And especially as the government, you know, the government thought, well, we'll just incentivize this and then we'll have more chargers and then more people buy EVs and it'll be this virtuous cycle. In reality, what happened was people took the money, companies put the money, they put chargers in the ground that were not reliable, that were not high speed, they were not good quality, they weren't compatible with all the models on the road and that became a, a sunk cost it's just it's just wasted money now and so i think like you know what we're learning is and it's similar with with on the consumer side we incentivize evs and now all we've done for the last 10 years is pay rich people to buy a, a cool car that they wanted to buy anyway right and so and so we, and we have a bubble a premium ev bubble right and 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 we're not actually scaling the market so i think what what's happening is we we've spent 10 years with really really simplistic government policy around let's just encourage this stuff and the and the private market will take over and everything will just magically happen together. And we're slowly but surely realizing, nope, we actually have to do real policy. And as, as witnessed by the fact of like how many millions were squandered on EV charging at these places that didn't even require them to like know whether they're working or not. You know? Yeah. I mean, like the guardrails weren't there, right? It was just a straight up and, and it's like, I understand why that happened. Like, let's just get this moving. Let's just, you know, but when there aren't any basic requirements or by the way, insider knowledge to provide that framework, um, what you get is like in the city of Tucson, for instance, sure. There's a couple of electrify Americas on the freeway. Funny fact about Tucson, there's no freeway through the middle of the city. So if then you look at actually where there are chargers in the city, it is a literal desert, you know, figuratively, literally, you guys, you guys can laugh at my joke, but um, it is, there's nothing. And the ones that were placed in a couple of, they are in the worst locations. They make zero sense. Um, they don't work. It's a disappointing experience all, the, all around. And so guess what? You are pretty much saying you have to own a house with a charger in it in order to own an EV in this city, a city that puts itself on the on the map as being very progressive and all this stuff. What, Which means, by the way, you have to have a garage and you can't live in an apartment that doesn't, you know, and so there's all of a sudden, if it's very inaccessible um, to own an EV and also, which all happen to be an average price of $55,000 anyway. So I guess that's the demographic shift, right? And to go full circle, right back to where we started this conversation, we started talking about, you know, how do you, how do you live in this, in, in a place like Phoenix without an EV with, you know, preconditioning, right? And I was like, well, without a car. And now if you want to own an EV in the, like there, you know, if you want to own a car in a place like Phoenix, but 
you know, don't want it to to emit, you know, carbon, you have to then own a large house with its own garage and its own charger and stuff too. Like we are, this is not. Or by the way, or like, by the way, own a Tesla because in Tucson, guess what the only reliable, I mean, and, and this is not me like pumping up Tesla. Guess what the only reliable, every time I've used it, never failed bank of uh, chargers in the city are. It's Tesla, but but again, and, and you shouldn't so you shouldn't be using a, 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 a an external charger, like a fast charger, uh, regularly anyway, right? If if you're in your hometown and you're just driving around town, you shouldn't be using a supercharger. It's bad for your battery and it and it creates congestion at a a choke point for people who are trying to go long distances. Like, but this is this is why we need charging. But there's at but there's no not- other right. But there's also no other, and we're you know we could have a whole show about this. But um, if you drive around. Um, for instance, I thought this was a great idea, but this this charger has been um, non-operational for three months now, right in front of the Tucson Electric Power main headquarters in downtown. It's like meter side parking. And right there, they've got this great charger. And um, for a while, it was actually free. So it's super popular and it hasn't been functioning now for a while. And I'm forgetting the company. It's not ChargePoint, but it's another one maybe EVgo and you can park like parallel parking, pay for parking and you can use these chargers. They're not um, like a DC fast charger, but they they're like a level two. Um, and those are great. I'm like, imagine if you actually had on street parking like that. People would pay for it. It would work just fine. It's easy to get in and out. Um, people know how to parallel park for the most part. But where I'm seeing these other um, level two chargers parked, Weird private businesses that sometimes are completely inaccessible at certain hours of the day, all like weird location in the city and also in the tiniest spots where like even a very small car would have trouble. I mean, these are the things I'm seeing. Zero thought or consideration in how people might actually want to use them. And that's my biggest issue. It's not just the lack of maintenance, which is another big problem. It's zero thought given into actually how including on road trips, by the way, because if you're traveling by yourself and half the population is a uh, woman and the, um, are women and the, um, the DC fast charger is in an unlit back desert lot behind a fast food. Do you really want to be like chilling there? Not really. Like it, it's a, you know, so there's zero thought and consideration given where these things are even located, let alone maintained. So that's my rant. All right. So, uh, well, I think I'm we should we... finish this spicy episode. This yeah. is another great episode. I, I, I love you guys. Well, we love you too. We and love we love all, all of our listeners for making it through yet another episode of the Atonicast. I really want to talk about how hot it is uh, living in Phoenix, but have you seen the trailer for the movie Napoleon with Joaquin Phoenix? Like, can we just change the podcast to... <laughs> Movies about Joaquin Phoenix playing historical figures. Wow, that figures. was a pivot I was um, not expecting. At all. Have you seen the trailer? I don't know the relevance to mobility technology, but I'm extremely hyped for that movie. Well, you know, the French army needed a lot of mobility to get from France to Russia and back with, you know, with all their gear. I mean, so mobility matters. No, it's like Clausewitz said, an, an army marches <laughs> on its mobility technology. <laughs> 